Dr. Dale on Quail, bringing you the latest news and views about all things quail in Texas. Brought to you by the Rolling Plains Quail Research Foundation, preserving the wild quail hunting heritage of Texas for this and future generations. Major support for this podcast comes from Gordian Sons Outfitters. Hello everyone and welcome to this month's edition of Dr. Dale on Quail, monthly podcast I hope you've been enjoying for the last year or so. And this month's uh, edition I think will be particularly of interest and as always we're joined by Dr. Dale Rollins. Hello Dale. Hey Gary, it's always great to be here and I look forward to this session. Well it's always a good time I guess to look back at the most recent history through a quail's perspective, uh, but also look ahead. Uh, what can you tell us about what we've just experienced, perhaps as a, a most recent period of time for quail in Texas? Well, for those of us that hunt in the Rolling Plains in West Texas, it was a nightmare. Possibly the worst year I've ever seen. That's coming off the hills three years ago of the best year in 50-something years of quail hunting that I've ever seen. So it's, it's demoralizing. Uh, that we didn't have any more quail than we did. And, and sometimes I gotta be careful running a nonprofit like I do and people say, well, you, you might ought to be more optimistic about this, you know, you're a bit fatalistic or whatever. I often think, you know, as you watch the evening news, if you watch MSNBC, you get one side of the argument. If you watch Fox News, you get the other side of the argument. I'm just trying to be not necessarily pessimistic, but realistic in my assessment. We knew going into this quail season it wasn't going to be great, uh, but we had hoped for better. Most of the people that I asked for their predictions uh, are disappointed now that they told me it was going to be a four or five because over most of West Texas it was a one or a two. And so that's pretty pitiful. And I often think back to the, uh, the movie uh, a, Few a Few Good Men with Jack Nicholson, yes. Tom Cruise, and the courtroom scene where... He says, you can't handle the truth. Sometimes we have a hard time handling the truth, but uh, as a quail scientist, I appreciate that. And when I say appreciate that, I judge with heightened awareness. And I encourage everybody else to too. So as we try to troubleshoot seasons like 2019-20, what went wrong? What is it that's within our control that we might be able to do better and be able to see a resurgence of quail? Maybe not this year, but hopefully in 2021. As you look back, are there certain indicators and certain things as a research scientist, like you mentioned, that you point to and look to first? Uh, are there certain pieces of evidence that you're starting to cobble together? Well, I'm a student of what I call patternology. That's a Rollinism term for the scientific study of patterns. You know, we go through, we look at various things. If we're observant, we say, hmm, I wonder if that's related to this. For example, one example is our rats. Uh, in the Chinese zodiac, this is the year of the rat. I hope it is, because in 2015-16, we had rats galore, but now we have quail galore. So you try to piece together what some of those various things are. Uh, we'll talk later on another uh, podcast about uh, the parasite work that we've been involved with and some of the things that, that may be happening there. I always like to quote, uh, again, being a former Okie, there was a governor that, his name was George Nye, he was governor during the 70s, and when I was in high school, he came and spoke to our class one day, and he, before going into politics, he was a, he was a historian in McAllister, Oklahoma, a history teacher, 
And he always said, we study the past and apply it to the present that we may affect the future. So again, we, we think back to what happened in 2011 and 12 that caused such poor crop crop there. That was that historic drought. 2019, we had abundant moisture, at least until late June, and then it just shut off. A lot of people would say that's why we didn't have any quail. Well, quail aren't, aren't sissies all the time. I mean, quail are used to some hot weather. And I look, patternology-wise, I look at South Texas. South Texas is having an average to above average year. They were drier than we were. So it's not always as simple as just saying, if it rains, we'll have quail, and if it don't, we won't. And we're trying to, again, tease out what those relationships are and see if we can have an impact on those that will make a difference. Is it true that there's always more quail out there than what you might think? That was uh, what Dr. Guthrie always espoused. And I'll say yes, there are always more quail out there. And I hope, I mean, we've, we've titled this podcast Silent Spring. And my fear is that people are not going to be hearing quail come May. But my hope, and, and I have some confidence in this, that the question I'll be getting the end of May will be, where did they all come from? I'm hearing them whistling. I didn't think there was a quail out there anywhere. So hopefully our silent spring won't be as silent as, as what we might predict it would be right now. Uh, I want to talk, again, Silent Spring, when you think of that as a student of ecology at least, you're thinking back to a book in 1964 written by Rachel Carson by the name of Silent Spring, and that was the, the wake up for the environmental movement. You may think that's good or bad, but it, that was basically an event that kind of set those kind of events uh, into motion, and it was uh, one of the biggest things was the use of uh, organochlorine pesticides, DDT, and the impacts, the second order level impacts that those had on various birds and so forth. And one of the things that came out of the environmental movements in the 70s, again, I realize this for your time, Gary, <laughs> but they used to say, think globally and act locally. Think about the big picture, but then also do what you can at the local level to make the situation better. And that's kind of a, a theme that we want to think about as we move through this podcast. Talking about listening for birds in the spring, there are some call counts that might be effective in doing that. Uh, there are some ways in which you as a landowner or student of quail would approach those call counts. That's right. Uh, again, this will start, and, and I think we've mentioned this in a previous podcast about how to count quail. Uh, we have uh, a webisode on how to count quail and so forth on YouTube. So you can go to our website, quailresearch.org, and find out more about those. It's not rocket science. Uh, it's basically, we're just assessing what the capital of breeding stock is out there. It was lower last year, again, than what we had hoped it would be, and chances are it'll be lower this year. Uh, but you won't know unless you get out there and listen. Now, as you do that, one of the most important things you gotta think about is your hearing. And if you're 60 or older and you find yourself saying, huh, or do what, four or five times in a conversation, you better find you one of these Bob White Brigade kids that's 18 years old and can go with you. Uh, younger ears will definitely pay a dividend as you're beginning to listen for the Bob White's whistle. Well, predators are always a likely suspect, uh, as well as weather, uh, all those things uh, contribute to our circumstances that we just experienced. 
And we've talked about a number of those. If, if you go to our website and look at previous podcasts, we've done predators and quail, and, and uh, we're gonna do a future one on parasites and quail. So uh, a lot of information that we've got, you know, for more information, go to those uh, particular things. Another thing that uh, sometimes happens, and we've documented it there at the research ranch, in the vernacular of a submariner rigged uh, for silent running. You know, you've seen the old war movies or whatever where the, the, the submarines and there's a destroyer above them kind of thing, they have to go quiet so they're not picked up by that uh, threat above. Quail do that to some degree too, and we've documented this with one of our recent th uh, master's research efforts out there about where the quail occurred on the landscape during 2015 and 16 when things were good, and then where they occurred on the landscape when things were terrible, like 2011. And where they go is they seek the heavier brush. They basically rig for silent running. And so one of the reasons that we're not finding many quail, and, and the, the fact that we hope there are more quail out there than what we think, is because they select that heavy brush. And that heavy brush is typically the safest place for them in the environment. Uh, it's either safe from bird dogs or it's safe from uh, northern harriers or whatever the threat may be. So those types of heavy brush tend to serve as refugia for us during these hard times. And that's important to think about as we're contemplating our brush control efforts and so forth. Across the landscape, we can probably get by with as little as five to 8% brush cover. But we might ought to be thinking about having some storm bunkers, if you will, of 10 acres of fairly heavy brush or fairly heavy prickly pear that can serve as those lifeboats for quail during these tough times. You know, in Texas, uh, cotton is king. It's our number one uh, most uh, economically important row crop that's grown, but it was a tough year for cotton farmers, particularly on the South Plains and areas of the state. Uh, there's some similarities there. Uh, cotton farmers and those that appreciate quail both had a tough year, but they look forward to opportunities ahead in much the same way. Hope springs eternal in quail hunters and cotton farmers. And I often, uh, I've made the patternology analogy many years ago that if you have a good dry land cotton crop in the rolling plains, you've had the moisture for a good quail crop. Now that kind of dissociated in 2010 because they had a bumper cotton crop and then we didn't have any quail in 2010. So again, that makes you question things. I'm, I always speak highly on broomweed. And if you drive across West Texas right now, the broomweed crop is beautiful from my perspective. A lot of, a lot of broomweed, some of it waist high. Well, again, I, I tend to associate a good broomweed crop with a good quail crop. And I gotta, I gotta give you a few lyrics from a new song I'm working on, and apologies to Merle Haggard. Merle had a hit called Tonight the Bottle Let Me Down. Well, for quail hunters this year, it's gonna be this year the broomweed let me down. <laughs> and I'm still fleshing out the lyrics on that, but uh, it's one of those, again, a pattern that has always held true, or typically held true, but it didn't hold true for us this year. So what happened? It, you know, it wasn't, again, not as easy to write off weather as a lot of people would like to like to let's look ahead uh, it's always opportunity to prepare for the next year that hopefully will be better uh, is it time to get the land ready for next year can the uh, 
managers, landowners uh, start preparing for what could be? Absolutely. Uh, and again, think about those cotton farmers. Here this is uh, late March. They're already got, getting their, depending on where they're at in the state, they're probably already plowing and uh, some of them may be planting and that kind of thing. And, and uh, so being prepared, my, our president of our foundation, Justin Trail from Albany, often says that my goal is to keep my property in the kind of shape that when it does rain, I can make the maximum use of that moisture and so forth. And that we'll talk later about something called plant succession and, and how we can uh, have a goal in mind with what we want our country to look like. And then having our actions, whether they be ax, plow, cow, or fire, having our actions help us to achieve that goal. How do you know what you got in terms of quail capital? How do you determine what you're starting with, what those resources are that may be on the ground? Well, again, our, our easiest way of doing that it will be through spring cock call counts. Let me wet my whistle just a minute. Literally. And again, doing those, finding out, and, and over the years, I've built some thresholds that I call quartiles. If I'm hearing three birds or fewer at a stop, I'm concerned. Four to six, that's average. Seven to nine, that's above average. That's where the research ranch typically is is seven to nine birds per stop. Anything above nine is pandemonium. It's hard to keep up with, but that's a great problem to have. I don't expect too many people to be reporting nine or more birds calling this year, but hopefully a lot of sites, traditional quail sites, will be in that three to five. And again, that's enough to give us, give us hope for a good nesting season, I think. Would you like people to let you know what they're hearing? Absolutely, I always appreciate their emails. Uh, We'll be doing Facebook posts and these kind of things and comments from readers. Number one, I'm, I'm always, I've got my finger on the pulse across a large part of Texas. But again, I like to have feedback from them about, well, I didn't hear any, I'm in Western Mills County at Goldthwaite. I went out, used to have quail, didn't have to have bird dogs, hunting with a 410. I didn't hear a single bird. You know, Gary, I had something happen to me this past, January, I hunted with a guy in uh, Reynolds County. Reynolds County is one of those best kept secrets in Texas as far as quail. I got skunked. Mm. Four hours we had dogs on the ground, I got skunked. Really? And that's the first time that's happened to me in 26 years with my line of better bird dogs. So things are tough right now. And, and I'm as anxious as anybody, and I've gotten one to have my ear cocked uh, to listening to, to those birds whistle and so forth. So that's going to be our first opportunity to assess just how bad is it or do we can we still feel a pulse out there help us uh, make better use of nesting cover things that we could be doing as a landowner community and those interested in quail uh, certain things that we could be improving on our property right now well there's unfortunately we can't just snap our fingers and say we need nesting cover that's a that's an, uh, a management factor that's affected by grazing typically and so we had to think about that a year ago you know, because we, we grow grass here from mid-April to mid-September, and so we have to take note of what our abundance of bunch grasses, when I say bunch grasses, uh, species like little blue stem, silver blue stem, those are the go-to grasses for quail that are nesting. And so we have to take assessment of that the year before, so it's like looking through the rearview mirror. Driving down the road, but we're looking through the rearview mirror. And so that's why I always harp on conservative stocking rates, and again, 
knowing when to say when. Certain types of grasses lend themselves to better nesting cover? The bunch grasses, uh, again, little blue stem, silver blue stem, things like tobosa grass uh, further west, those kind of things uh, get typically about the size of a basketball. We'd like to have about 250 of those in an acre. Now, sometimes it's acres about the size of a football field with end zones. Sometimes we want to squeeze that down. And so I talk about SHET, softball habitat evaluation technique. We'd like to have about 25 bunch grass sites within the infield of a softball diamond. That's a little bit less than a tenth of an acre. So give you a mental image of what your country should look like. And always, uh, a lot of times when I'm doing a field day or an educational program, I may not have the boss there, but I've got his hand, or oftentimes the cattle manager or whatever. And so I always try to make this relevant to what he's dealing with. And so I say, as you sit on your horse, you ought to be able to rope from one bunch grass clump to the next. That's about the density that we'd like to see to provide good nesting cover. Good nesting cover is our first line of defense against predation of our nest. An important term that you use uh, on your uh, field outings and so forth is plant succession. Uh, what does that mean exactly? I define plant succession as the orderly, predictable change in plant communities over time. That sounds like botanical BS. <laughs> Let me put it in, in uh, something you'll understand. If you were to take a, a tandem disc out here and plow up rangeland, take it down to bare ground, and walk away from it, it's not going to come back in a little blue stem and silver blue stem that first year. You're going to stimulate sunflowers, dove weeds, a lot of those what we call early successional forbs. And then again, five years down the road, you're beginning to see more little weedy grasses sand drop seeds, some of these kind of things, it may take 30 years or more to get back to what it was before you plowed it up. That change in communities is called plant succession. And that, as quail managers, that's one of our most powerful tools is to be able to disturb that soil and recognize that if I'm wanting to foster this suite of plants, whether it be for nesting or for uh, seed production or insect production, this suite of plants, this plant community is going to come in two to five years after I disturb it and I got to recognize that I can disturb it at different times and promote different types of plants. I often say Rollins rules of plant succession consist of two things, knowing your plants and knowing how to manipulate them. Knowing which plants are important to your key species of management for us today that's bobwhite quail and then saying I'd like to be able to grow sunflowers. How can I do that? So then we say, we're going to manage that plant succession with what I call Leopold's toolbox. What he said was the axe, the plow, the cow, the fire, and gun. And so we adapt those to our landscape and quail. The axe is brush management. The plow is either the farm bill or soil disturbance. The cow is grazing management. The fire is prescribed burning. So we've got to become students and masters of those tools, just like a master mechanic. I might need a 9-16 inch box-in wrench for this job. A pair of pliers may do for this over here, but I can't use a pair of pliers if I need, if I've got a bolt that won't come out or I'm just gonna tear it up and bust my knuckles. So I gotta learn how to use those tools in the appropriate way. And the tools and how they're used may depend on area of the state you're in, on the condition of Absolutely. the habitat itself? Yeah, for example, let's go to Victoria. Average rainfall may be 45 inches a year. 
If you ask me what range condition class, you know, would I want for Bob White quail, I'd say probably fair condition. I mean, range condition historically was noted as poor, fair, good, and excellent, depending on how closely it, it uh, resembled the, what we call the climax plant community for that region. If I go west to uh, Fisher County where the research ranch is, I want good to excellent range condition because I'm going from a 45 inch rainfall zone to a 20 inch rainfall zone. If I go to Fort Stockton 12 inches, I want excellent range condition for quail. It just, so that rainfall, that environment has a tremendous impact. Your soil type has an impact. Those we can't change, but we can change the management. And so we have to adapt the management to fit that environment and to fit the needs of our bird. Are the management strategies and tools for quail, Dr. Rollins, uh, exclusive to quail or will other wildlife species benefit from that? I call quail the canary of the prairie. And so again, if we've got something that's excellent for bob white quail, a lot of species, hunted or not hunted, benefit from that. Uh, the most, uh, a, a fairly common question I get is, is deer habitat management compatible with quail habitat management? I'll say to a degree, but you can't maximize both at the same time. You're gonna want a little bit more brush from the deer hunting standpoint than you are from the quail hunting standpoint. So just recognizing what those bounds are and again, having a mental image, because I gotta be able to communicate that mental image of what I want it to look like to my dozer operator or to my grazier or whatever the case might be. I would reference that video, that webisode we did called Softball Habitat Evaluation Technique because everybody's played slow pitch softball and there's a lot of similarities between slow pitch softball and quail habitat that I expound upon in that webisode. So you can take a look at that and uh, if, you, if you say you like it and you're doing a good job, well, you can write to me and I'll send you a shit softball. <laughs> what a deal. It has quail management guidelines printed on the softball. Is it signed by Nolan Ryan? Actually, there are 35 softballs that are signed by Nolan Ryan. I have one of them and the members of the 2009 Quail Masters class have the other one. Very nice. Uh, he's a very gracious guy and he, uh, I think I probably shocked him when I asked him if he'd signed 35 softballs, but he did. <laughs> <laughs> Student of quail, we've used that term often uh, here in our podcast. Uh, you mentioned the webisodes. Uh, that's a great way to learn and be a better student of quail. Webisodes are very popular on your website. That's right. Uh, and again, I've been a student of using your communication horses, whatever form they may take all throughout my career. Whether it's radio tapes that I used to do with your colleague, uh, Kurt, or uh, again, newspaper articles and magazine articles. But in the digital age, again, the, we've got about 35 YouTube webisodes out there on various aspects of quail management. Those are available 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. You can be sitting there in your recliner in your underwear and watching them if you want to. And, and I get a lot of comments back about those that people, it, it, you know, you don't fully appreciate how much people are using those. But when people call in, uh, it, it's pleasing, it's satisfying to find out that they've listened to our podcast. They, uh, they've watched all these webisodes and so forth. So uh, we continue to do those. And if you have a, a particular topic you'd like to see addressed, shoot me an email. We'll address it either in the podcast or a, a potential webisode. Communication is both ways. That's you right. want to hear from those that are on the land managing for quail and otherwise because that helps you get a better pulse of what's out there. I often 
always, not often, I always encourage people interested in quail to become a better student of quail. Student is the key word there. Student doesn't know everything. Student is learning or should be learning all the time and school is in session 365 days out of the year. So just because we're coming off a poor quail year and we're lamenting the fact that, well, my dogs are getting old, well, we'll get out there and number one, learn your plants. This is a great opportunity to do that, be a better uh, student of, of plants. There's another little program that I use all the time. Now, a lot of you use Google for various things. There's what's called Google Scholar, scholar.google.com. So if I go there, this is gonna let me access basically all of the technical literature that's out there on the, on the web. And so if I was to punch in Bob White's Soil Disturbance, Plant Succession, it's probably gonna bring up 30 different articles that you're not gonna find unless you're actually looking for them. And if, if you can get into a little bit of the technical, these are mostly technical articles, but uh, some of those you'll find very interesting. What do you hope we're talking about in a few months? Uh, what is it that you think uh, the, the words that you'd most like to hear as you visit with folks across the country? Well, again, we started off talking about Silent Spring and the words that I fear the most is, the words that I fear the most are, is that, well, you said we weren't gonna hear Mary McQuail and we're not, but I'm optimistic. And again, following Dr. Guthrie's truism that there's always more quail out there than what we think, that the, answer, the question I'm gonna be receiving in late May is, where did they all come from? I didn't see a quail all season, but I can hear three whistling from my back porch right now. And so that will be uh, adrenaline to me and it'll be a good message for all of us to hear if indeed that's the case. Thank you, Dr. Rollins. We appreciate your optimism. We appreciate your insights as we learn more about quail and we all become better students of quail. We hope you've enjoyed this month's podcast. Uh, please join us every month as we continue to talk about the issues related to quail management in Texas. Go to the website, quailresearch.org, for episodes of podcasts previous months, as well as the webisodes that Dr. Rollins referred to and other research materials that are important that you will enjoy uh, regarding quail in Texas. Once again, thank you for being with us this month. I'm Gary Joyner with the Texas Farm Bureau. We look forward to visiting you again next time. Appreciate it. Support from Gordian Sons Outfitters makes Dr. Dale on quail possible. Gordian Sons, the finest hunting and fly fishing shop to be found. Find out more at GordianSons.com.